0: So Dr. Rachel Bond, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to be a guest on Coco Pods, a maternal mortality and morbidity reduction podcast. I, with our podcast team members, are certainly looking forward to hearing from you today, and I'm eager to receive what you have to share. My name is Dr. Bola Sogade. I'm a women's health specialist, a board-certified OBGYN. And I talk about all the issues that affect the mom uh, before, during, and after pregnancy so that I can bring awareness to these issues with hopes to make the problems better. February is American Heart Month. What does that really mean for the healthcare professionals and for individuals and patients and maybe for public health officials?
1: Yeah, thank you first and foremost, Dr. Sagati, for inviting me to the show. I I love the fact that when you have a podcast but a podcast particularly that's focusing on women's health. So I, as a cardiologist, actually have a very unique opportunity because I focus on women's cardiovascular health as well. And when we think about February in particular, we know that the whole month of February is dedicated to increasing awareness for heart disease, but also stroke. So cardiovascular disease and the way we best define cardiovascular disease is having any disease in the arteries of the brain leading to a stroke, the arteries of the heart possibly leading to a heart attack or chest discomfort, or even the arteries in the extremities where we may have pain when we walk that goes away when we rest. And what we aim to do for that month of February is highlight the fact that although Heart disease is our greatest threat in the United States for men as well as women. It's something we could prevent 80% of the time. So that's the goal of Heart Month, to really give the public understanding on ways to actually reduce their risk. I also want to highlight that the first Friday in February is actually Dedicated to women's heart awareness. That day in particular, we strive to wear red to increase awareness that heart disease impacts women equally, if not more, than their male counterparts. So it's extremely important that we talk about the ways that women are uniquely affected by this epidemic that we're seeing when it comes to cardiovascular disease.
0: Thank you. We have medical students performing clinical rotations with us at our facility. And at this particular time from Trinity Medical School, we have third year uh, medical student, Abigail D'Souza, with questions she would like addressed on women's heart health. And one of the questions that she asked is, um, what are the manifestations of heart disease in men versus women? And why is there a discrepancy between heart disease diagnosis in men versus women. And I'll give you the third part of her question. How can we modify the way we manage women's complaints? How can the sex disparity be changed in terms of how a, a woman can voice her concern and be taken seriously?
1: Absolutely. Those are wonderful, wonderful questions from your medical student. And I love the fact we're actually having medical students ask these questions because that's when we want to actually understand the disparities. So once they become residents, attendings, et cetera, they're not actually experiencing those disparities or their patients are not. So to answer the first question We know that men and women do actually present very similarly with signs and symptoms of a heart attack. So what are those classic signs? Feeling like an elephant is sitting on your chest that's brought on by exerting yourself or stressful events. It goes away with stress. Perhaps it radiates up into your neck or your jaw or down your left arm. That does occur very commonly in women, but- There is a third of the time that women more than men experience the non-classic symptoms. So what are those non-classic symptoms? Those are possibly not chest pain, but maybe back pain, maybe shoulder pain, maybe jaw pain, maybe some um, upper stomach discomfort, something like indigestion, a feeling of indigestion or shortness of breath, and even sometimes fatigue fatigue and tiredness that doesn't go away could be an early warning sign that there is something going on with your heart. Now, because women are more likely to present with these non-classic symptoms, it can be challenging for clinicians to diagnose heart disease. But we as clinicians have to be hyper vigilant because if you're presenting with these symptoms and you have a series of risk factors, you have to always be thinking of the heart. As it stands right now, we know that women are less likely to be diagnosed early with heart-related conditions, and even when they're diagnosed, they're less aggressively treated. So there is an, a bias, as you mentioned and alluded to, a gender bias that is for the most part unconscious, but it's rooted in the education that we have. And I think this why this podcast is so important is you're having medical students at the table who are asking these particular questions because that's where the training needs to start to understand that uh, heart disease impacts women just as much, if not more than men. And one thing that is important that I will say that will help change the disparities that we see is explaining to the clinicians what those risk factors are. Because when we think about common risk factors for heart heart disease, we think about the ones that make it preventable 80% of the time, like the traditional risk factors of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, Uh, smoking or drinking alcohol in excess, not really having any physical activity and eating an unhealthy diet. But we do know that women have more sex-specific risk factors. A lot of them occur during their reproductive years, if they have an early menstrual cycle or a premature menopause cycle, if they have any adverse pregnancy outcomes like gestational diabetes or high blood pressure or preeclampsia or even premature labor, those are all risk factors in the future for women to have heart disease. So as clinicians, when these patients are coming in with more atypical or non-classic symptoms, we have to think about those risk factors as well. We also have to think about how stress impacts one's heart. Particularly, stress being more common in women and more debilitating in women in terms of the effects it has on the heart. So, I will say that one way to fix this is to make sure that we're thinking more broadly about those non classic symptoms, but also those uh, more sex specific risk factors. We also want to make sure that we empower the patient if they understand that their symptoms are possibly concerning for a heart related condition. When you present to the emergency department, when you present to your primary care doctor's office, wherever it may be, you have to say the words, I believe I'm having a heart attack or I believe I have heart disease because no one can ignore you when you say that. We want to make sure you're advocating for yourself and we're giving you those tools to make sure that your messaging is getting across.
0: Thank you. And um, she did ask, you know, three other questions. Uh, This is uh, Abigail D'Souza, third year medical student. Is high blood pressure always an indicator of heart disease? Do women of different ethnicities share the same risks for heart disease? And in what way can a woman improve heart health apart from exercise and diet? And we'll talk about ways, preventative ways uh, down the line.
1: Absolutely. So high blood pressure is under that umbrella for cardiovascular disease as well. We know that high blood pressure down the road, if untreated, can affect the pumping of the heart. It can affect the shape and the size of the heart. And it it also is a very common risk factor to cause an accelerated plaque buildup in the arteries of the heart, which eventually could lead to a heart attack or possibly even in the arteries of the neck. Which potentially can lead to a stroke now uh, asking the question do we see disparities from a race perspective is a really important question now i will say that heart disease impacts everyone irrespective of race and ethnicity but what we are seeing is that it's disproportionately affecting women of color particularly black women at very young ages as it stands right now, when we look at a female that is a Black female above the age of 20, 60% of Black women above the age of 20 have some form of cardiovascular disease. And again, as I mentioned, it's occurring at younger and younger ages. And one thing that we can do is have the have the community understand that this is an epidemic that's out there. Have them understand the importance of going for your well-woman visit, making sure that your blood pressure is being checked at least on an annual basis, if not more, if it is elevated. Also understanding that we have recently, about a few years ago, changed the guidelines of what high blood pressure is. We dropped the level by about 10 points for the the upper number, which is the number that allows the blood to pump out of the heart or what we call systolic blood pressure. The reason we did that was because we saw that when people had a blood pressure that's deemed elevated, which is normal blood pressure being 120 over 80 or less, there was a higher risk of heart disease. But once we got to 130 over 80, which is considered high blood pressure that risk doubled. So as a result, we have to be very aggressive in diagnosing high blood pressure, which is for the most part a preventable and modifiable risk factor through lifestyle a lot of times, so healthy diet, exercise, but in certain situations we may need medications. And the sooner we diagnose it, the better off it is because it won't impact the cardiovascular system as much. Wow.
0: Well, thank you. Um you um, are a fellow of the American College of Cardiology. You are a member of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, a member of the Association of Black Cardiologists, and a member of the American Heart Association. And you are a national spokesperson for the Go Red for Women campaign, and you sit on the board of directors. And I know when we started, we said something about this. Can you tell us more, what it entails to be a national spokesperson for the Go Red for Women campaign?
1: Absolutely. So the Go Red for Women campaign was created with the intention of increasing awareness that heart disease does impact women in the United States. What I do as a spokesperson is I volunteer my time and services to get that messaging out there, but ensure that that messaging is clear. So a lot of times that would imply going on media podcasts uh, such as yourself, but more importantly, having a series of lectures where I target the community so they understand what the risk factors are that are more specific in women. Also understanding the tools of what they can do to reduce heart disease. I, again, always like to emphasize and repeat over and over that although heart disease is our greatest threat, we could prevent it 80% of the time And that's a large portion, and a lot of it has to do with lifestyle modification. So what the American Heart Association has allowed us to focus on are seven simple steps on how to remain heart healthy. What those steps include are making sure, one, you're going to the doctor to ensure your blood pressure is under control, your cholesterol is under control, your blood sugar is under control. You're eating a well-balanced, heart-healthy diet that's low in saturated fat and is more, more importantly has a variety of colors, such as green leafy colors and wonderful colors that make that plate healthier, and less bland, such as simple carbohydrates. We also want to make sure that we're exercising at least 150 minutes per week of some form of moderate exercise. I always tell my patients there shouldn't be any excuses for that because that also includes brisk walking. So briskly walking is something that we should hopefully be able to add into our our regime. But beyond that, we also uh, make sure that we're not smoking cigarettes, we're not drinking alcohol in excess. And I always like to add that in, in addition to Life Simple 7, it's important that we also include stress into the mix because that is a very large risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So a lot of the work that I do with the Go Red for Women campaign, or even through other societies like the Association of Black Cardiologists, as an example, is trying to get the messaging out there to the community that heart disease is our greatest threat, but it's something we could prevent and providing them with the tools on how to prevent it.
0: No you know, how can mental stress affect your heart? You, you did allude to that uh, a little bit in your conversation.
1: Absolutely. So it's normal for everyone to experience stress, right? It's sort of that fight or flight response, but imagine experiencing stress each and every day, that chronic stress. It's that ongoing stress that eventually will take a toll on your cardiovascular system. It, It leads to elevated blood pressure. It can affect your pulse rate, causing an elevated pulse rate, all of which do take a toll on the heart. And as I mentioned earlier, we know that it's that chronic stress, anxiety, and depression that does disproportionately affect more women than men. Data also shows that after a heart attack, as an example, a female is much more likely to experience stress, anxiety, and depression. And being it's a risk factor, it's something we as clinicians have to do a better job at screening for. I routinely, when I first meet a patient, but also when I see that there may be signs or symptoms of depression or stress, I ask them to take a very brief questionnaire so we can determine the severity of it. And if it is severe, then we obviously would come up with a management plan. But I can't stress enough, pun intended, that stress is a very common risk factor. And it's an important risk factor that unfortunately, even us as clinicians don't screen for.
0: And so, you know, we're in rural Forsyth, Georgia. I mean, you know, some women, that that is just, this stress is just part of their lives. And just even the ability to exercise, some people consider it a luxury or the ability to have a colorful plate of vegetables, healthy living. I mean, is there anything, if you are going to think of low resource women in America or maybe in other countries, is there anything from a low resource point of view that women can really just do to help their heart health you know as we say you know valentine's day is coming how can women show their heart some love this valentine weekend for instance with a heart healthy meal or how can low resource women manage stress better
1: Yeah, and I love the fact you ask about the low-resource women because we know that heart disease disproportionately impacts those, uh, and it's more driven by those social determinants of health with socioeconomic status such as income and education, a part of that. As a result, it's very challenging because that is really changing the system at large because the system has not been as fair for those particular women as other women who have access to, as you mentioned, healthy eating habits or a safe location to go and exercise. But what I will stress, again, bringing up stress, is that a lot of these women that are coming from those um, those, uh, groups Definitely have the burden of being the sole either breadwinner of the family or the one that is taking on all the responsibilities to ensure that everyone is taken care of, that their health is taken care of, and and unfortunately, because of that, they may be losing insight of actually caring for their own self. We know that in order for you to care for your family your friends, your loved ones, you have to first pause and care for yourself. So we have to take that cape off some days and we have to express ourselves. And if we are overwhelmed, We have to take that break. If we're noticing that we're not feeling well, we have to go to the doctor. If we're noticing that our stress is becoming unbearable. And as I mentioned, many people have stress, but if you're not coping with it in a healthy way where you're noticing you're eating an excess amount of junk food, you're flocking to alcohol as an example, that's when we have to take a pause. And we have to say, I need help. I need a medical professional who's going to help me. And the first stop is talking to a doctor or a clinician who you feel you have a trusting relationship with. I know it can be challenging at times, and I know when the resources are not out there as much. But one thing I do want to stress, at least when it comes to cardiovascular disease, A lot of the societies that I do sit on, we have resources for patients. I will highlight just the Association of Black Cardiologists as an example. On our website, you can look up Who is a cardiologist in your community who you may feel more comfortable with seeing because they look like you, but more importantly, they identify with your culture. Beyond that, though, we have a series of cookbooks and ideas on what is healthy eating, but also we have an area that is dedicated also to mental wellness. And a lot of times that could just be you going to one of your faith-based members go to the church, um, decide to have a conversation with your pastor, as an example. Anything that's going to get that burden of stress off of you and make sure that you put yourself in the center of your health.
0: Now, I know you mentioned the ABC, Association of Black Cardiologists, and not only do they have the resources online, but they've actually performed health fairs on the ground in select cities. They've actually gone out to meet with some of the women, some of the population. Have you participated in any of these health fairs by the ABC?
1: Yes, I have. And I will say that things now are slightly different because of this COVID stage. So things are more virtual, but we've done phenomenal jobs, even through the pandemic, in getting the messaging out there on vaccinations, as an example. We know that our cardiovascular patients are at that highest risk when it comes to COVID 19 if they were to get infected, to have severe disease or death. So we are encouraging the vaccination, trying to provide a really good information as to why they are effective, particularly for those patient populations. But the ABC has done this for decades. And I think as a result, we really are seeing sound change. We feel the communities involved and where we're going out to the community includes those faith-based centers like the churches. We also are going out to the beauty parlors and the barber shops to get the messaging out there, because we want to include the trusted members of the community into the care team, making sure that we provide either infographics, educational material, or anything that, again, gets that important message across.
0: Now, you know, I have been fortunate to work with you. You are the lead author in an iconic paper published in the iconic cardiology journal Circulation in February 2021. And, you know, thank you for just letting me work with you on this. And indeed, we did publish in circulation in February 2021. And the title of that paper is Working Agenda for Black Mothers, a position paper from the Association of Black Cardiologists on Solutions to Improving Black Maternal Health. What are some of the important points? Uh, to reduce preventable deaths in pregnant and peripartum women that we can summarize from this well done, very detailed uh, paper in which we have so many other co-authors, very important and highly intelligent people that co-authored this paper. But what are some of the important points to summarize from this paper?
1: Absolutely. Well, I first want to highlight why, as a cardiovascular society, we wanted to delve into this particular topic. As it stands right now, we know that the United States is the only developed country in the world that's seeing rising rates of maternal mortality, meaning death. We actually looked at this, and when you compare the number of deaths from the 1990s to now, it's just continuously increasing, despite... The fact our healthcare system is improving. And when you actually delve into the number one cause of death, we know it's from cardiovascular disease. One in three deaths are related to heart disease and they disproportionately affect women of color, specifically black women who are three times more likely to die than other races from pregnancy related conditions. And also within the first year after their delivery. So postpartum as well. The fact why we as the Association of Black Cardiologists wanted to tackle this is the same reason we tackle heart disease because it's preventable. And when we think about maternal mortality, it's preventable 60% of the time. So we're missing an opportunity here to not only empower these pregnant women, but also educate our clinicians on how better to improve and screen for the signs and symptoms of underlying cardiovascular conditions. So what we decided to do was come out with salient solutions how can we improve this crisis that we're seeing and we wanted to do it several fold first we wanted to highlight the importance of preconception counseling meaning before you decide on having a baby making sure that you're having a doctor's appointment you're reviewing all of your risk factors and in our community the black community we know that a lot of times those traditional risk factors we talked about earlier do disproportionately occur blood pressure issues, diabetes, being overweight or obese. And those are very common risk factors for maternal mortality, high blood pressure, obesity, as well as diabetes. Another risk factor is race. And that's, as I mentioned, and when we think about race, it's not the genetics or the biology of the race, it's more of the social aspects of the race With at the core of that being those biases that we alluded to earlier, such as racism. But one thing that we wanted to highlight was the importance of preconception counseling, where if mothers experience any of those risk factors, they're in the hands of a doctor who will manage them, make sure they're under control prior to conception. There may be discussions about getting a cardiologist involved sooner rather than later, understanding that if you have elevated blood pressure, you're more at risk in your pregnancy to possibly have a conditions like preeclampsia where your blood pressure becomes elevated and it could cause issues to your vital organs and it could be both dangerous for you as a mother as well as your baby. Um, this is where we also talked about collaborative care. We talked about the benefits and of this evolving field, which is called cardioobstetrics, where we have cardiologists, obstetricians, maternal fetal medicine or high-risk obstetricians, as well as anesthesiologists, Primary care physicians all collectively working together and monitoring and managing that patient throughout the course of their pregnancy. So again, starting in preconception, but also through that kind of prenatal, antenatal period where they're actually having close follow-up with all doctors, making sure that a delivery plan is set for them. We also talked about the value, particularly in women of color, of doulas who are professional supporters that you can have throughout your pregnancy and who are so impactful and powerful during the delivery. They're your voice. They're your ears. They're your eyes. They're everything that you need to make sure that your delivery is perfectly as it should be. And if there are issues, they'll be reaching out to the clinicians. We also talked about the importance of incorporating midwives also into the mix. Midwives provide such a value. And for patients that are deemed suitable to be delivered by a midwife, it's it's definitely, I think, a key part that we wanted to express, that there's variable things and variable ways that mothers can go about having a very safe and sound delivery. We also talked about that important postpartum period. As I mentioned, death still can occur up to one year postpartum. In fact, about a third of deaths do occur up to one year postpartum, many of which are due to heart disease. So we talk about the obstetrician sort of handing over the baton to the primary doctor or to the cardiologist, depending on what the risk factors are, to make sure that that patient doesn't have uninterrupted care. One way to do that also, as we talk about in our paper, is ensuring that Medicaid is covered beyond 60 days. As it stands right now, we know that 50% of pregnancies are Medicaid pregnancies, and a lot of states are pausing after 60 days coverage. This is making very vulnerable women more likely to have complications because they are unable to see a clinician. So we are working as a society with a lot of our policymakers supporting the Black um, Momnibus Act, which has had Uh, a wonderful uh, stride in getting messaging out there even now up to the administrative of our United States of America's desk for signing a lot of these acts into, into play. But we're working with the Black maternal momnibus to really ensure that coverage is extended beyond 60 days. We also talk about in the paper about highlighting the fact that when it comes to Black maternal health, it's across the span of education or income, right? So we have cases like Serena Williams, as an example, who experienced uh, a complication during her pregnancy and She's a superstar. We have cases like Beyonce who experienced a complication during her pregnancy and she as well is a superstar. So it's important for women to understand that it's irrespective of your education or income, the mere fact you're a black female living in the United States of America, you are at a higher risk of having poor outcomes during your pregnancy. And a lot of it is centered on those biases that we talk about. So other things we address is diversifying the cardiovascular field, the obstetrical field, the medical field, to make sure that more clinicians that look like the populations we're caring for are actually in the hospital. To also make sure that we're um, empathizing and encouraging our colleagues who don't look like those populations to empathetically treat them, but listen to them as well, right? The most important thing is we empower our patients to know the signs, the symptoms, what their risks are, and make sure that they find a clinician who they feel comfortable talking to, meaning a clinician who's willing to listen to them. So that's a lot of what the paper discussed. I know it's a lot, but um, I can tell you that it really has changed the format and structure of a lot of societies and a lot of hospital systems, even my own in the state of Arizona where I'm helping to lead a maternal heart council. Um, We made sound change and I'm really fortunate that we were able to get this paper published.